is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And perhaps the most famous martyr of the second century was the early church father, Polycarp. Until his death in 155 AD, Polycarp served as the bishop of the church in Smyrna. And tradition tells us that that Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, and that he was linked to some of the most significant figures in the early Christian church. But the thing for which Polycarp is, is most famous is not his life, but his death. After his death, the church of Smyrna wrote a letter retelling the account of his martyrdom. The letter opens with these sobering words. All the martyrdoms which God allowed to happen were blessed and noble. Who could not admire their honor, their patience, their love for the Lord? They were whipped to shreds till their veins and arteries were exposed and still endured patiently. While even those that stood by cried for them. They had such courage that none of them let out a sigh or a groan, proving when they suffered such torments that they were absent from their bodies, or rather that the Lord then stood by them and talked with them. By the grace of Christ, they despised all the cruelties of this world, redeeming themselves from eternal punishment by the suffering of a single hour. The fire of their savage executioners appeared cool to them, because they fixed their eyes on their escape from the eternal, unquenchable fire and the good things promised to those who endure, things which ear has not heard, nor eye seen, nor the human heart imagined, but were revealed to them by the Lord. They were no longer men, but had already become angels. In the same way, those who were condemned to the wild beast endured dreadful torture. Some were stretched out on beds of spikes. Others were subjected to all kinds of torments, all in the devil's attempt to make them deny Christ. This is just a glimpse of the horrors that the Roman Empire inflicted upon the early church, all because they refused to bow the knee to Caesar and instead bowed the knee to King Jesus. Such is the story of Polycarp. During the execution of a Christian named Germanicus, as a crowd of pagan spectators watched him fight with the wild animals, the crowd cried out, bring us Polycarp. And so a search party was sent out to find him. And when Polycarp was arrested, he was taken to the arena to stand trial. And the letter continues. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven saying, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Say, down with the atheists meaning away with the Christians. But Polycarp looked grimly at the pagan multitude in the stadium and gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists. But the proconsul was insistent and said, take the oath, cursed Christ, and I will set you free. 
And here was Polycarp's response. 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? And upon the proconsul's persisting still and saying, swear by the fortune of Caesar, Polycarp answered, if you vainly suppose that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you do not know who I am, listen plainly. I am a Christian. I have wild animals here, the proconsul responded. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned, said the proconsul. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Well, almost 60 years earlier, the the church in Smyrna, the church Polycarp would one day pastor, would also find themselves caught in the crosshairs of the Roman Empire. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Last week, we saw that the book of Revelation was, is one big letter addressed to seven specific churches throughout Asia Minor at the end of the first century. And in chapter one, a, a vision of the resurrected King Jesus appears to the apostle John. He's holding seven stars in his right hand and he's moving among seven golden lampstands, which we saw symbolized Christ's authority over his church and and that the seven churches of Revelation were representative of all local churches across all times and all places. And we also saw that the reason Jesus was moving and speaking among his people was to evaluate how well they were bearing witness to him to the nations. This was the reason he he had chartered and constituted the church in the first place, which is why the churches were represented as lampstands. And in chapters two and three, Jesus, he, he kind of hands out progress reports to each of the seven churches. And last week, we heard him speak to Ephesus. And this morning, we hear his words to the church in Smyrna, about 35 miles up the coast from Ephesus. And while Ephesus had its own fair share of challenges, the church in Smyrna faced a, a kind of pressure cooker situation that was ripe for intense persecution. And so, so Jesus' tone with the, the saints in Smyrna is, is less one of loving rebuke, like we heard last week, and more one of tender encouragement and comfort. So listen to his assessment of the church in Smyrna, beginning in chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, the breakdown of the letter is is rather straightforward. In verse 8, Jesus identifies himself to the church. And then in verses 9 to 10, Jesus is going to show the church what they must suffer for his sake. And then in verse 11, he's going to make an incredible promise to those who remain faithful to him. And and before we can get into the actual body of the letter, just like last week, we again need to, to understand the significance of the way that Jesus identifies himself to this church. In Revelation 1, uh, verses 12 to 20, Jesus appears to John in glory. He's holding those seven stars in his right hand, and he's walking among the golden lampstands. And that's kind of the overarching, controlling image of Jesus that we need to hold in our minds as we read the rest of these these letters to the churches. But within that overarching image, Jesus appears to John in in a variety of other ways. And then in each of the seven letters to the churches, Jesus is gonna pick up, he's gonna pick up those other images and he's gonna apply them uniquely to the particular situation of each of the seven churches. So let's see how this, how this unfolds in the letter to Smyrna. Look first back at Jesus's opening words to John in Revelation chapter one, verses 17 to 18. One, 17 to 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Okay, so you got that image? Now listen to how he reveals himself again to the church in Smyrna in verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. All right, now what, what's going on here? Why does it matter that Jesus, why does it matter what Jesus says about himself in verse 8? Well, it's because everything that Jesus says to the church in the rest of the letter, it's all going to hang off what he says about himself in verse 8. Everything is going to pour out of that image. Okay, now what does it mean that Jesus is the first and the last? Well, this This is clearly Jesus identifying himself as the sole creator of all things and the sovereign Lord of history. It's very similar to the way God identifies himself to John back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, the Alpha and the Omega. And it's the same way that that God reveals himself throughout the Old Testament. We heard God call himself the first and the last in that passage from Isaiah that Trey read for us in the call to worship. So Jesus, what he's doing here is he's taking upon himself the divine title of God. He's proclaiming that he is the origin and the goal of all history. Eternity 
answers to him. And history itself sits in the palm of his hand. That's the first image. But look at the other way he presents himself. The one who died and came to life. The one who died and came to life. Here Jesus is telling us how he can lay claim to such a title. He's, he's giving us an important clue as to how he shares eternal life with God. And it's through his triumph over death. The first and the last, the eternal one, is also the one who died and came to life. He both stands over history and then he enters into the progress of history to be killed. And then he rose from the grave. Which means that Jesus not only holds history in the palm of his hand, he now holds the keys to death and life itself. And both of these images together are going to inform what I think is the main idea of the passage. The main message that, that Jesus is trying to get across to these suffering saints in Smyrna and to us here at UBC. It's this. Fear nothing. Fear nothing. For the king who holds history in the palm of his hand lives to preserve his people. Fear nothing. For the king who holds history in the palm of his hand lives to preserve his people. We're going to unpack this by looking really just at three ways that, that Jesus reveals himself as a king to the Smyrnans and then preserves his people in these verses. So these are our three points. King Jesus knows our affliction. King Jesus knows our affliction. King Jesus strengthens our resistance. He strengthens our resistance. And then point number three, King Jesus secures our victory. He secures our victory. So point number one, King Jesus knows our affliction. Jesus' opening words in, in verse nine, I know, I know, are, they're the same words with which he opens each of the letters to the seven churches. And we saw last week that Jesus spoke these words as a kind of assessment of the Ephesians' faithfulness or lack thereof. And here Jesus, he's doing that same kind of assessment-like work but he's less concerned with correcting a problem that he finds in Smyrna and more concerned with comforting them. So this is one of, one of only two letters, the other being the church to Philadelphia in, in Revelation 3, where Jesus only speaks words of encouragement and promise to the church. There's no rebuke that's given to Smyrna. And, and there are two ways, really two ways that Jesus knows what Smyrna's going through, what they're suffering. And first, as, as we just saw in verse eight, as the sovereign king of the universe, he's intimately aware of what the citizens of his kingdom are experiencing. He's not aloof. He's not an absent-minded Lord. He's not the kind of, of king who, who sits off far away in his castle, far removed and unaware, and unaware of what's going on with his people. He knows what they're feeling, 
what they're facing. He cares. He's concerned and and he's involved in it. But there's a second way that, that Jesus knows their suffering. A second way he knows their suffering. He knows it as their suffering king. Because he's experienced suffering himself in his very own body. He knows what it means to be despised and rejected by men because he was despised and rejected by men. He knows what it means to be slandered, oppressed, and afflicted because he was, he, he was slandered, oppressed, and afflicted. He knows exactly what it likes, what it feels like to be a lamb led to the slaughter because he himself was a lamb led to the slaughter. And so these opening words, they reveal an intimate, experiential knowledge of, of what the Smyrnans are enduring on Christ's behalf. But what exactly are they suffering from? Well, Jesus identifies three things, tribulation, poverty, and slander. Tribulation, poverty, and slander. And their tribulation it points to physical suffering that they're experiencing for their faith. Now, we don't know exactly what these physical assaults entailed, but we know from the meaning of the word that, that it meant distress and, and oppression. These guys were physically paying the price for identifying themselves with Christ. But they were also paying the price economically, hence their poverty. So like Ephesus, Smyrna was an important center of of emperor worship and its economic lifeblood centered on idolatrous temple trade and the pagan worship of Caesar. The city was also renowned for its beauty, its civic pride, and its claim to be the birthplace of Homer. So it was deeply, deeply committed to the principles and the values of Rome. And to not participate in the city's economic trade meant you did not contribute to the glory of the Roman Empire. You were, in effect, robbing Caesar himself and not helping to raise the city of Smyrna to new heights of prominence in the empire. And so Christians became easy targets for economic pillaging. It was, and it was especially easy for the city's Jewish population to plunder Christians, leaving them destitute. But the main way that Jews harmed Christians in Smyrna was with their tongue. Up until the latter part of the first century, Christianity, it had, a, it had enjoyed a degree of protection under the umbrella of Judaism, which, which was an acceptable religion in Rome. But by this time, Christianity had lost that level of protection. And Christians had come under increased suspicion of Roman authorities. And the Jews, as a means of of serving their own self-interest and self-preservation, they were all too eager to rat out Christians in the city to the Romans. And as they did that, they were in effect signing the warrant papers for their arrest. And Jesus sees this this slander as an act of aggression, not just against his people, but against him. He takes it personally, which is why he says the Jews have no claim to the name that belongs to the people of God and instead calls them a synagogue of Satan. 
This is because God defines his people in relation to Christ, not their genealogy. And in aligning themselves against Christ's people, the Jews were now, in effect, aligning themselves against God and with Christ's enemy, Satan himself. But Jesus also says something amazing about the Smyrnans. Despite all their suffering, he says they're rich. Despite all their poverty, he says they're rich. But how can he say such a thing? Well, because Christ knows that the promises of the gospel are worth abundantly and eternally more than all this world could offer. Though the Smyrnans have lost everything in Christ, they possess an inheritance that can never be taken from them. This is a radical, radical shift in perspective that Christ is calling all of us to. He's calling us to see our status not as the world does, but as heaven does. We're rich not on the basis of the stuff that belongs to us, but solely on the basis of the one that we belong to, the king of eternity who purchased us with his very own blood. Brothers and sisters, do you see yourself as Jesus sees you right now? Do you see yourself as Jesus sees you, as heaven itself sees you, Or are you still assessing yourself according to the stuff you do or don't have? Look, it's tempting for us as Christians in a nation that has, has looked, largely looked favorably upon Christianity to think that this kind of persecution that's happening, that's described in these verses, that it doesn't apply to us that this is just a first century Christian kind of problem. It's not something we're gonna deal with in 2021. I mean, can we honestly say that we're suffering tribulation, that we're suffering poverty and slander? Can we say those things about ourselves? Well, while we might not be facing the kind of persecution that's gonna lead us to be burned at the stake or thrown to lions, Brothers and sisters, we do experience opposition in this country because of our faith. And that's, that is so important for us to remember because the kind of suffering that Jesus is talking about in these verses, it isn't the kind we experience solely as a result of living in a fallen world, like the pains of an aging body or as a result of our sin. No, this affliction is a direct result of simply choosing to follow Jesus in a world that hates him. This is about being harassed because you've bowed the knee. You've sweared your allegiance to King Jesus, which means that this kind of persecution isn't something only a few Christians in the first century experience. No, not at all. Persecution on account of Christ is something every Christian everywhere can expect to experience. So from stiff fines to family shame to being kicked off college campuses, 
to laws against sharing our faith, to unjust trials, to public mockery, slander, and scorn, to arrest and brutality. If we faithfully follow Jesus in this world, we will face persecution at some point in our Christian discipleship. We can expect it. Even American Christians, if we are really Christians, we will have crosses to carry. And I don't know what kind of assaults, what kind of crosses for his sake Jesus may ask us to endure in this country, but I can tell you that whatever comes our way, whatever comes our way, we are rich beyond our wildest dreams because the high king of heaven holds us firmly in the palm of his hand. And he knows, this king knows exactly what we're up against because he's sovereign over it and because he's been there before. And he calls us to be strong in the midst of it. And this leads us to our next point. Point number two, King Jesus strengthens our resistance. He strengthens our resistance. In verse 10, Jesus, he turns to exhort the church to continue marching forward in faithfulness. Two imperatives anchor the verse and really the whole letter to Smyrna. Don't fear and be faithful. And in the middle of those two commands, Jesus tells the church that, that the heat on them is about to crank up. It's about to go from a seven to 10 to max capacity. He says the devil is about to throw some of them in prison so that they'll be tested and that they'll experience an intense period of trial. Notice who Jesus ascribes that imprisonment to, the devil. Does this mean that Jesus has lost control all of a sudden? I don't think so. I, I think what Jesus is saying here is he's telling us, he's recognizing the realities of the devil. The devil is a real figure with a real agenda to do real harm to Christ's people. But he's also drawing our attention to how he, as the king of eternity, has stripped Satan of any real power. All Satan can do is put Christ's people in prison. But Jesus holds the keys to life and death. He's got the keys that set him free. So Satan is playing his only hand right into the hands of Jesus Christ. And this plays into a larger theme in the book of Revelation. Though it may appear like Satan's plans and purposes are triumph triumphing over God's, brothers and sisters, things are not as they seem. From the world's perspective, it may seem like the devil is in control. And like Christ and his people, like we're on the losing side of history. But from heaven's perspective, the perspective that finally matters in the end, the pieces on the board are moving exactly where Christ wants them to go. Just, just as Satan's plans at the cross were used to bring salvation to the world, so are suffering will result in our blessing, our deliverance, and our ultimate victory. 
And so Jesus, he's helping us to recalibrate our perspective again, to see things, especially our suffering from the vantage point of heaven, just as he sees it. This is what those 10 days are meant to to reinforce. This is an allusion to the 10 days when, when Daniel was tested and ordered to participate in idolatry in Daniel 1. Now, I don't think that Jesus is, is referring to a, little, a literal period of, of 10, 24-hour days. I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making to these Christians. I think the point he's making is how short their suffering in this life will feel compared to eternity. Because here's the deal with 10 days. They're not that long. There's a limit. There's a cap. And in light of eternity, 10 days is nothing. So this period of intensified persecution, it's actually meant to encourage us. This is why Paul is able to call suffering a light and momentary affliction. So again, listen to what Jesus is doing. See what he's doing. He's hoisting us up on his kingly shoulders like a little child so that we can see our lives and our suffering from the vantage point of heaven. He's giving us a better view. And all of this, all of this is meant to strengthen the church's resistance to the cultural pressures of the Roman Empire. And it's meant to strengthen us to the cultural pressures of our day. Because eventually, eventually our opposition to culture will mean culture's opposition to us. But notice how Jesus calls us to resist. Notice how he calls us to bear witness to him when culture turns. He doesn't call us to violence. He doesn't call us to take up arms against our oppressor. No, he he calls us to fearlessly suffer, to faithfully endure, and perhaps even to die. Which, brothers and sisters, was the very same path God called Jesus to take for us. Now, I... I don't think this call to be faithful unto death means that every faithful Christian will be put to death for following Jesus. Revelation 6 shows us that martyrdom is a special category that's set aside for a select number of Christians. But I do think that this is teaching us that the Christian faith requires, it means that every faithful Christian must be prepared to die and accept martyrdom if it comes for us. Christ's call on our lives, it leaves no wiggle room, no middle ground where we may hope to avoid death by compromising with Satan or forsaking Christ or making a treaty with culture's demands. There's no middle ground. Endurance and faithfulness even in the face of death, is what it means to be a faithful witness. It's what it means to bear witness 
to Jesus. We see this happening all across the world today. You heard that in Michael's prayer of the pastoral prayer this morning with the Uyghur people. According to, according to the Open Doors watch list, every day, one in eight Christians in the world face high levels of religious persecution for following Jesus. That's more than 340 million believers worldwide. And today, more than any time, more than any time in modern history, Christian persecution is intensifying with little sign of relief. In more than 60 countries, in places like Nigeria, North Korea, Somalia, India, among the Uyghur people in China, Christians risk isolation, ridicule, imprisonment, torture, rape, and even death for their faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is absolutely nothing safe about following Jesus Christ in this world. There's nothing safe. There's no suffering-free version of Christianity out there that we can opt into. So don't let the relative ease and comfort with which we can follow Jesus in this country lull us into thinking for a second that bowing the knee to Jesus will not cost us. Because what we are doing is gutsy. It's dangerous. And it will put us squarely in the crosshairs of a world that despises our king. And if we keep it up, it may just cost us our lives. And if it comes to that, we must remember the king who is commanding us not to fear and to be faithful. He's holding us and all of history in the palm of his hand. And he is now preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And the one who died and came to life, that one is on our side. And he's worth dying for. And if Jesus is worth dying for, then he is certainly worth living for. This leads us to our final point. Point number three, the king secures our victory. In verses 11, in verse 11 and at the end of verse 10, Jesus makes an incredible promise to those who remain faithful to him. In verse 10, he says that, that he will give the faithful the crown of life. And then in verse 11, he says that the one who conquers, meaning the one who remains faithful to him, they will never be hurt by the second death. And I think these are basically two ways that Jesus is talking about the same thing. The first image, the crown of life, uh, connotes athletic imagery that would have been fitting for the church in Smyrna, which was a city famed for their athletic games. And Jesus is picking up this laurel wreath imagery and he's turning it on its head. What's going to look like final defeat in the world's eyes will actually mean eternal victory for these brothers and sisters. So this, this is just remarkable. 
to these afflicted, persecuted, as good as dead Christians, Jesus promises honor, victory, and life. Again, this is, this is a radical, radical shift in perspective. In the world's eyes, losers. But in heaven's eyes, victors. For this crown, it, it also signals participation in Christ's heavenly victorious rule. Later in the book of Revelation, Jesus is he's pictured as this conquering king coming down from the heavens on a white horse with a crown on his head. And here Jesus is promising this church a seat of honor in that kingdom he's going to usher in, that kingdom he is establishing. And then Jesus, he expands on this promise later in Revelation, and this helps us see how the crown of life is connected to the second death. So flip over in your Bibles to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. Here here we're getting a picture of, of believers who've been martyred for the faith being rewarded with eternal life, being rewarded with rule with Christ, and then being protected from the second death. So Revelation 20, verses 4, 4 to 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, do not get distracted by all that thousand-year stuff going on in there. Don't get distracted by the mark of the beast and all that. That's not the point that Jesus is making. What we need to see is that those who are crowned with Christ will reign with Christ and are not touched. They're not hurt by the second death. Now, what is the second death? Well, look, look down in, in chapter 20 at verses 14 and 15. Satan's just been defeated in the verses prior, and now King Jesus, he stands ready to judge the living and the dead, and this is what we read. Chapter 20, verses 14 to 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the second death it's clearly language for final judgment. The lake of fire, eternal death and separation from God. His wrath against those who opposed him and his people and do them harm. It's hell. He's talking about hell. Look, look now at, at chapter 21, verses 5 to 8. Flip over there. This, this just continues to inform, inform the second death in this promise. Here. In chapter 21, we see Jesus dividing his people from those who are not his people. We pick it up in verse, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, 
For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see what's going on here? Those, those who bow the knee to King Jesus in faith, they inherit the eternal heritage of God himself. But to those who don't, to those who oppose him and his people, they get the eternal horrors of the second death. Which, friends, it means that, that what we do with Jesus in this life affects what he does with us in the next. So, friend, if, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you need to recognize the eternal implications of what you do with Jesus in this life right now. You, you and I have sinned against our God. We've rebelled against his rule over us. And God says that the wages of that rebellion is death. That is how seriously God takes sin against him. And when judgment comes for you and hell itself demands that you pay up, your only hope, our only hope will be in the one who's already paid those wages for us in full. For even though we've sinned against this holy God, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save us from our sin and the wrath to come. The king of all eternity, the one who, who is the first and the last, he came to suffer, to be slandered, to die in our place on that cross so that we might be saved. He died and he came to life and he now stands victorious over sin and death over hell and satan itself and he's calling us to come to him in faith and repentance to come to him and follow him to life eternal so friend come to him what are you waiting for what are you waiting for bow the knee to king jesus in faith and live live Now, to my brothers and sisters in this room, to UBC, you've got you've to hear this. Death will come for us in this life. Death is coming for us in this life. And it very well may come for you or for me because we have bowed the knee to King Jesus. And if it does, then remember what's in store for you. Remember who holds you firmly in the palm of his hand. Because Jesus conquered the grave, he now holds the keys to death and life and Hades, which means he now holds the power over the entire sphere of death 
and hell. And because he now stands victorious over death and our enemy, so do we. So do we. And he now just calls us simply to trust him. To trust him. To trust his conquering work. And we can trust him because your victory, my victory, our victory is secure in him. So don't fear. Don't fear. Be faithful. Death may be coming for you. But your king has already defeated it. And because you're in him, you've already conquered it too. Our brother, Polycarp, he refused to forsake Christ as king. And so he died. The account of his death reads, Then the fire was lit, and the flame blazed furiously. We who were privileged to witness it saw a great miracle. The fire shaped itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, and formed a circle around the body of the martyr. Inside it, he looked not like flesh that is burnt, but like bread that is baked, or gold and silver glowing in a furnace. And we smelled a sweet scent, like frankincense or some such precious spices. And finally, when those wicked men saw that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to pierce him with a dagger. And so, Polycarp died there in the arena. An 86-year-old martyr to the high king of heaven. Bearing witness to the high king of heaven. And as Polycarp was being tied to the stake to be burned, he prayed this prayer. O Lord, God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Such was the high king of heaven's call and command upon Polycarp's life. Such was the king's call upon the church in Smyrna. And such is the king's call upon us here today. Brothers and sisters, don't fear. Don't fear. Be faithful. Be strong and play the man. For the king who holds history in the palm of his hand lives to preserve his people. And you will receive the crown of life. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you for a king who can deliver on his promises. We praise you for the one who is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. We praise you that that he strengthens us in our weakness, that he helps us to endure in our suffering. We praise you that he knows what we are enduring for his sake. And we praise you that he has secured for us a victory that we could never secure for ourselves and glory and riches and treasures beyond all we could ever comprehend. Father, help us to help us to endure, help us to resist, help us to be faithful, help us not to fear whatever comes our way in this life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.